This is 20 by 20, a podcast from Newcastle University's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape, where we ask leading architects, urbanists, designers and thinkers to reflect on the ideas, inspirations and interests that shape their practice and their views on the present and future of architecture and cities. It's 20 questions in 20 minutes with me, Owen Hopkins. So let's begin. Can you tell us who you are and where you are speaking from? I am Farshid Musavi. I'm an architect and uh, I guess you could call me also an educator. I teach and I am right now uh, at home uh, in a room that used to be my walk-in wardrobe that I have transformed to my office. And what are you currently working on? Architectural project-wise, we are working on a, on a cultural centre in Houston, that's our main kind of project that is keeping us very busy. Uh, we are working on a private house in Sussex uh, and a housing project in the south of France. I am working on a book and I'm also teaching, which is keeping me quite busy. You sound incredibly busy. You've mentioned your, your practice, your research and your teaching. And you know, that's something that you, you combine in, in a really interesting way. I was wondering how you see the relationship between these, these activities, which all constitute architecture, but are very particular in their own ways. I think we need them all and we need to constantly speak to both kind of arenas, if that's how we can call it. Uh, practice is really important because ultimately that's how we shape our built environment and improve uh, life hopefully the other side which is to do with the world of ideas is about situating uh, our day-to-day practice in a kind of a larger history of architecture learn from the past uh, think about the future uh, be more reflective and be more proactive rather than reactive which practice tends to be uh, mostly like. What led you into architecture? How did you decide that that was the career that you wanted to embark on? It attracted me because it has this practical side and a kind of a artistic side. I think that that, that this combination seemed attractive to me. I don't think I was so calculative about it. Uh, you know, I think that my mother at the time of applying for university, she probably liked the idea of me doing medicine, Uh, you know, and maybe my father was more supportive of architecture. And, you know, I I applied to do architecture and I I feel really lucky that I found that I could be very passionate about it and that I enjoyed a lot. It could have been the other way, but the more I, I, I got into it, the more I realized I had made the right decision. One of the things that you've spoken a lot about and written about, of course, is, is the relationship between architecture and philosophy and the influence of work of some particular philosophers on how you think about and how you practice architecture. You've touched on this already a bit about how architecture draws from this sort of bigger network of ideas. But could you sort of expand on why this is so important that, that architecture has this, this constant philosophical grounding? I think philosophy is the field that that takes the broadest view of life, humanity, the world we, we inhabit. And I, I think that architecture has, has its own kind of scale, which is relatively small. Even a big building 
is tiny relative to the world. And however, if we imagine us as a kind of a collective of kind of, you know, architects uh, shaping the built environment in our own small way, we contribute to significant changes of our planet, you know, of our cities, of our countryside, etc. And I think that it's important for us to connect small decisions to the big decisions. And, and I, you know, I think that philosophy is one, is one area that I found this connection being made. And uh, I find it useful as a way to open up my own, my own understanding, if you like, of, of the architectural scale. I listened to a, an interview that you gave previously, and you said something that really, really struck with me. It was that buildings are not about the architect, but about the people. And the buildings are about how they perform in society, which I think has really interesting and really important implications for architecture as a kind of a social practice, but also thinking about its sort of material implications for the world, particularly its relationship to climate and the climate crisis. I've asked you to expand on something already before, but could you expand on that as well? I think that we need architects in the way we need artists and we need scientists, but ultimately it's important to remember that uh, what we do is not for ourselves, but for people other than ourselves. And I think that for a building to come about, you need an architect, you need an engineer, you need, you need a team of individuals. But once the building is there, it's irrelevant who the architect was. It's important what the building is, what it does, you know, how it uh, interacts and shapes this environment, uh, how it you know, lives through time, etc. And I, I think that this is important because we should be putting buildings in that kind of, within that kind of, um, you know, set of questions rather than worry about whether the, whether the building is, is a manifestation of our own interests and, you know, whether it um, represents us. I think, you know, 20th century architecture and even, you know, into 21st century early, there, it's been too preoccupied with, uh, with the kind of the personalities uh, that have shaped these buildings. And I think the art world is also suffers from it. You know, the more I see this single, I mean, sometimes I enjoy exhibitions being dedicated to a single artist, but I think there are, they are far too few issue-driven exhibitions it's become too much about the personalities uh, so i yes uh, like you said i i often say and i truly believe in it uh, you know i do think that different architects um make very different contributions and and so we do need the architect and we need interesting architects um you know we need to to, to have architects who are good thinkers good designers but for as long as we understand that that is just a means to the important end, which are the buildings. And what we should be discussing is, you know, not, you know, how we represent those personalities, but what kind of buildings they produce and why. And how has that, do you think, been affected by the pandemic, by lockdown, by remote working, both on a sort of day-to-day -day level, <laughs> you know, the sort of fundamentals of, Zoom meetings, and perhaps on that broader philosophical level about you know what what it is that that an architect does and how, you know how it relates to the building, how it relates to the society that the, the building is is intended to serve in some way. 
Well, I think that we are all probably asking how and why we can make differences to the world around us much more than we have ever before. So whereas perhaps activism was perhaps being pursued by, you know, maybe some, some practices and, and not many others, I think this is something that everybody, I am assuming and I'm hoping, is wondering, like how, how they can connect how they can connect their practice to the issues of our time. I think, you know, environmental issues. I mean, the pandemic has curiously also, you know, really uh, put even a larger lens on climate issues. I'm stuck in my own home and I'm speaking to my own team who are like-minded. We are like-minded because we work together. And every so often I speak to people like you, who I think probably are again like-minded. So it's difficult to know how it has truly transformed people's way of thinking. But I, I think it's, I, I'm, I'm quite confident that it has made good changes in our, in our approach to, to our work, to our cities, to our fellow citizens. Uh, you know, I walk along the street and, you know, to do my kind of little walks. And, you know, it's, it's, I think it's quite interesting to see how people behave towards each other. And most of the times, I mean, this issue of like respecting social distancing, it's, you know, it's considerate. And I think that people, I think I've realized that only together we, may, we can make a better world. And so that you can see it at the scale of two people, you know, walking past each other in the street and helping perhaps to kind of kill this virus. But also perhaps architects together, how they can make a better future uh, for our cities. I, I think that this is probably, it's, I think it, the pandemic in, in, in these ways has been positive already. Whenever I see someone wearing a mask, I think actually in a way this is an image of great optimism about society. So I share your optimism. <laughs> I will now want to move on to some quick questions, sort of interlude, before we get on to some more in-depth in ones. So our next question is, what is your favourite city? London. Okay. <laughs> I like the pause before you answer that. Well, I could have said Tokyo. Okay. Who or what would you say has been most inferential on your work as an architect? I can't say a single person. Okay. And I'm not sure if you've been able to travel at all over the last few months. We, we certainly haven't, but I know some people have managed to. But if you could get on a plane right now and visit any building in the world, what would it be? The Pantheon. Very good choice. I think it'd be up there for me as well. Okay. Corb or Mies or someone else? Mies, definitely. <laughs> okay. And is architecture a craft or is it a philosophy? I like the idea of doing craft philosophically. Okay, so put, the, put the two together. I hadn't thought of that, but uh, that, that's, that's a much better than either or. Okay, so we're now we're back on to some <laughs> longer, more discursive questions. And one of the things I wanted to, to ask about is, is sort of looking back and looking forward at the same time. And just to go back to um, the start of things for you when you won the uh, Yokohama Ferry Terminal in 1995 with Foreign Office Architects. And it's really interesting, I think, from the perspective now, not simply as this amazing and, and highly influential project, but as I think possibly the last example of a major international commission going to young and at the time 
comparatively inexperienced architects. And that, there are a number of examples of that in the 20th century. I think the Pompidou is probably the best known of that, of when major projects went to, to young architects and changed the direction of architecture or seized the agenda in, in some way, as, as, as your project did. Now the situation is rather different for young architects. And I wonder if do you think there's a way to get back to that, or is that moment is now gone forever? And how should young architects be looking for different ways to, to achieve the, the kinds of things, the kinds of impact that you achieved with uh, the Yokohama Ferry Terminal? I think uh, you are right. We, we were very lucky to land ourselves on that commission. I think actually right now, time is ripe for big thinking. Uh, I think that we've reached such a different situation to the early 90s that, you know, the situation begs big thinking. And, you know, it's too easy to look at the pandemic and, and obviously the, the kind of the financial setbacks that will hit uh, our industry and become small-minded and act in small ways, uh, which probably the market will, will kind of be pushing that way or will have to act more like that way. But I, I think our problems are big. And I think that it actually right now demands big thinking. So I, I would say architects, whether they are, you know, uh, young, uh, uh, emerging practices or or older, but it's usually easier for emerging practices because you have nothing to lose. I mean, that, that's the kind of situation we were with Yokohama. We had nothing to lose, uh, but, but to gain a project. Uh, and uh, is, is, to, is to, to come up with bold, big ideas. Now, this may not be big buildings, but we need to think bold and big. Historically, one of the, the, the moments when architects got the opportunity to do that in a, in a really profound way was in, in the sort of post-war era and that, that moment of rebuilding and of, and of remaking society, which achieved huge numbers of great things, but also failed in other ways too, I think it's fair to say. And one of the, the sort of reasons that some people think it failed is because architects at that time were not representative necessarily of the public that they uh, professed to serve. And mm. I think that's, that's still certainly the case. You know, architecture is still a very white, very male, very middle-class profession. I say this as someone who is white, male and middle-class, you know, I'm, I'm conscious that I'm very much part of this as well. Things have started to change and maybe the change is finally accelerating. But I, I wonder what we can all do to to make that happen make that go faster and, and ensure that the people having those big ideas are representative of the public that those ideas are intended to serve i think we have a lot of relearning to do uh, so probably it's going to take time for us to really be true truly representative of humanity at large and i think to to really to become even conscious of maybe the biases that we we have, uh, even unknowingly. I think this is going to be a very long process. But the, the great thing is that I think now, we, more than ever, maybe before, we are confronted with it to a scale that it has, it is starting to put it at the forefront of our minds. 
so I, I, I think that's there. And I don't know how it will reshape what we do, but uh, it, it's something that has started. But you know what? I, I think that good, or I should say great buildings have been about humanity at large. Maybe one thing we could do is to highlight those. You know, maybe we should be interrogating all the buildings that we think are great and to see in what way are they inclusive and whether they are actually. You know, I mentioned the Pantheon. You know, it's a kind of an open building and I can imagine that anyone can walk in there and enjoy it. But I haven't really analyzed it deeper because, of course, buildings are also the process that leads to them. It's not only as they stand. I haven't studied the history of how it came about and whether, you know, the labor that went into it was fair. You know, because those things also matter. Not now because that's happened. But in terms of learning from buildings and into the future, you know, it's, it's, it is important in the same way that we should not be supporting companies that are using wrong labor in parts of the world. So, you know, I think that we could learn from the past. Maybe that's a way to begin. Do you think buildings, therefore, can transcend the circumstances of their creation? Because something like the Pantheon is created by the Roman Empire, you know, where slavery was fundamental to how it operated, you know, and, you know, a highly sort of militarized political yeah. entity. Yet we can look at a building like that. It speaks to us in a way that, that cuts across that. And is that an example of, of these biases that we don't realize that we, that we possess? I don't think we should be in denial of the circumstances that led to it. And perhaps if the Pantheon today is a democratic building and an inclusive building, maybe we should isolate that, which is to do with the artifact and also its keepers, how they, how they manage it from the history that led to its becoming. My function books are, are a little bit about this discussion because they erase the kind of th that history and they, they draw all projects with the same style in order to look at the potentials of architecture as kind of artifacts standing there without their authors, without their back backgrounds, etc. And to look at it as a set of ideas that transcend and are, then can travel so that they become ideas for the future and the present and the future as well as the past. But, but I do think that those, the, the kind of the history and the background is another kind of exercise that we need to learn about, which the function books don't include because they don't have access to that information for all the projects. But I do think they are important. And good architectural prizes, such as, for example, the Aga Khan Award for Architecture that I know more about because I was part of the jury, etc., really look at projects from the inception all the way to, you know, three to five years of uh, the, the building being used. So it's important where the funding of the project came from. It, it depends. It, it's important. What kind of initiative led to the kind of the, the initial conception of the project before even the architect came about? And then how was the architect uh, selected? What materials were, were used? What kind of technological, social advances uh, were made through the project? And, and also how was it designed with it's kind of upkeep in mind so that uh, we don't burden future generations with something we create. So it's a question of trying to look at architecture in, in, in a much fuller way than perhaps we've, we've ordinarily been used to and being incumbent on us to constantly be looking to expand 
that that the way that we look at architecture and, and we, we look at its its products buildings i've ended these podcasts with um, a question because all of our audience are students if there's one bit of advice that you could give to an aspiring architect what would it be look at the world around you and imagine how you want it to be as a place today and the future that's great. That's, that's incredibly inspiring. So thank you ever so much, Fashid Musavi. Thank you. You've been listening to 20 by 20, a podcast from Newcastle University's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape. Stay tuned for more episodes, write a review or give us a rating, and be sure to follow us on your preferred podcast platform.